Let's open our Bibles tonight to 2 Timothy chapter number 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Last week we preached on how to study the Bible. And uh, we got so much response from it and there was so much left unsaid that uh, I figured I'd take a few moments tonight and share and expand on some of the thoughts that we uh, gave last week and maybe some new things be a help to you. I had a lot of people saying, you know, preacher, I've never heard that before. And uh, the reality is, uh, of all the things that we endeavor to do and to learn how to do, uh, rarely does a Christian endeavor to learn how to study the Bible. Knowing how to do it the right way is key in doing anything. Amen. Uh, I'm I'm not a cook in any way, and and one area of cooking I've never in any way been involved with is baking. If you need a cake baked, you don't want to ask me to do it. Amen. Uh, I'll bake something, but whatever it is will probably not be edible, and it sure enough ain't going to be pretty. I could do it, but I don't know how to do it. And I think so many Christians very often, you know, they read their Bible and uh, praise the Lord for that. That's the first step. You can't learn if you don't read your Bible. But if you don't know how to approach the study of the Word of God in a fruitful way, uh, then I think people get frustrated with it. They get discouraged with it. I think a lot of Christians, the the system they have for reading the Bible is they just flop the pages open to whatever and just pick up and start reading. And that is a quick pathway to get discouraged in studying the Bible. And so I want to give you some truth tonight I believe will be a help to you. Second uh, Timothy chapter number 2, verse number 15 is our text from last week. Uh, the Word of God says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you and thank you for this time. Bless the preaching of thy word tonight. Give us wisdom. Lord, may we, as we approach this topic, uh, have our hearts and our minds open uh, to the truth as it's presented from your word, and we'll be sure to thank you for it. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, last week we we talked about basically three areas of, uh, of principles for studying the Bible. And I'm not going to preach the first two, but I do want to review them with you very quickly. We talked about the spiritual principles of Bible study. Studying the Bible is a spiritual endeavor. And uh, that's part of the reason that until a person's saved, been born again, uh, accepted Christ as their Savior, they'll almost always find it a discouraging prospect to study the Bible. Because it's not a book like any other book. It's the revelation of the mind and heart of God uh, to humanity, and it's a spiritual endeavor. So we talked about the prayer of Bible study. We've got to seek God's wisdom. When we study the Word of God, we ought to begin by praying and asking the Lord to open our eyes, asking the Lord to teach us. Man, what an incredible thing to think that we have the author of this book residing within us. If we're saved by the grace of God. If we're born again. The Spirit of God that, that breathed this, that inspired this, that moved holy men of old with pen in hand to record these things. And He knows exactly what they mean. He knows exactly uh, how they apply to our lives. He lives within us. Uh, so the first step ought to be uh, to pray and to seek His face. Then we talked about the purpose of Bible study. Why do we read the Bible? I think a great many people read the Bible and have no no purpose in it. They just they do it because that's, they're a Christian. That's what you do when you're a Christian. And I think that very often they view it like homework. I hated homework when I was in school. If I went back to school today, I'd hate homework today. Uh, the teenagers aren't in here, so we don't have to worry about uh, giving them the wrong impression. But let me just say the greatest thing about being an adult, no homework. Amen. It's the worst thing in the world. I hate it with a with a passion. And if your approach to the to the study of the word of God and the reading of it is just to get through it, 
Well, that's all you'll get from it, is you'll get through it and nothing more. Now, the purpose for Bible study is uh, to be fed the Word of God, for it to nourish us, for it to comfort us, and also to change us. Uh, that's what the book of James says. We behold uh, the, the Word of God. It's like a man beholding his face in a natural glass. We look into the perfect law of liberty and we're changed by obedience to the Word of God. Uh, it's amazing, I think, how many people uh, read the Word of God and then never do what the Word of God says. Now, let me say unequivocally, I'm not a perfect person and I, I certainly don't obey the Word of God uh, flawlessly or, or any anywhere near even approaching probably what I ought to. Uh, but the Word of God is is not an academic book to be read just to digest facts, man. It's a guidebook. It's a road map. It is a pattern uh, for righteousness in our lives. So when we read it, it ought not just be, well, this is what I do. We ought to read it and say, God, feed me. God, change me. I remember when I was about 15 years old, I grew up and, I, man, I had a great man of God for my pastor. I praise the Lord for him. Uh, I wouldn't be who I am today if not for him. So if you don't like who I am today, you can blame it on him. But, uh, you know, by the time that I came along, he was getting up in years and he was at the age where every everything that anyone said reminded him of a story from 60 years ago. And and here I am, a 15-year-old young man sitting under a pastor that's about 80 years old that has uh, just, I mean, miles and miles of stories. And sometimes he'd spin those stories and tell those stories. And sometimes you'd be listening to his sermon. You'd get some sermon, and the sermon you got would probably be better than 80% of what anybody else could do, but you'd have to kind of weed through it. And I remember being 15 years old, making up my mind that God didn't have me there by accident. He had me there on purpose. And I approached every sermon with this question in my heart. Lord, what do you have for me? What do you have for me? Not not everybody else. What do you have for me? And, you know, I found that God could even use an 80-year-old pastor that had a ton of stories and sometimes rambled. He could even use that man to speak to the heart of a 15-year-old boy for this simple reason, because my heart was open and seeking him. So that's the purpose of Bible study, to, to be fed and to be changed. And then I would say we ought to remember the person of Bible study. Uh, the Word of God is about Jesus Christ. Every, every bit of it, from Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end of Revelation, it's all about Jesus Christ. Uh, Christ said this, search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. The Hebrews writer, quoting the book of Psalms, talks about Christ and says this in the person of Christ. Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Uh, the fact is, all of this Bible can only be rightly understood if we keep it in a proper relation to who Jesus Christ is. Everything God ever did, he did because he wanted to reveal something about who he was. And the ultimate revelation of who God is, is Jesus Christ. In him all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. He's the express image of the brightness of God's glory. And to behold the word of God and to study it and to absorb it is to learn more of Christ. In fact, John chapter number 1 tells us uh, that Christ is the word of God incarnate. Now that doesn't mean that uh, that when Christ walked the earth it was a little Bible walking around, nor does it mean when a preacher gets up to preach the word of God that he sets a little uh, statue of Jesus Christ up there. But what it means is that the Bible and Christ are synonymous in message and in nature. They're, if you want to know who Christ is, read the word of God and read it looking for him on every page. So we talked about the spiritual principles. Then we talked about the practical principles of Bible study. As with any endeavor in life, man, there's some practical principles that you have to apply. The first one we talked about was confidence. You've got to have confidence in this book if you're going to understand it. Now, to a degree, that's true of any book. 
Uh, you know, the reason that when we're putting together a barbecue grill, the reason we read the instructions is we believe they know more than we do. And we believe that it'll guide us and lead us to rightly putting together uh, that monstrosity of engineering. Amen. Uh, well, in the same way, the word of God, we have to believe it is the word of God if we're going to read it and study it correctly. Uh, we talked about having confidence in the inspiration of the text, the source of it. Uh, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. This doesn't just contain the word of God. These are the words of God. And by reading this King James Bible, we can hear the voice of God and we can learn the words of God. Uh, this is the very word of God. And then we talked about confidence in the administration of the text. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, the substance of it. That what is there belongs there. That it's not there by accident. That there's not stuff that should be there that isn't there. Now, this is foundational because you know what a lot of people will do when they read the Bible? They'll come to something they don't understand and then they'll just close their Bible. Or they'll just skip over it. Or they'll just, you know, move past it. And they'll never take the time to study it. But when you recognize that God took the time to put it in this book because He loves you, He's interested in you, because He knows you need this truth in your life, that what's there belongs there, it'll help you to study the Bible. And then we talked about confidence in the organization of the text, or the sense of it. That what is written is written this way for a reason. I'll tell you, there are times I'll study my Bible and I'll come across something and I'll think, I wouldn't have said it that way. Or I'll think to myself, what a strange thing to find at this place in the Bible. And at those moments, I have two choices. I can either say, well, that's weird. That doesn't make any sense and close my Bible. Or I can say, you know, God put that there where he put it, how he put it for a reason. And it's incumbent upon me as a child of God to find out why it's there. In other words, we shouldn't run from hard texts in the Bible. We ought to run to them. So we talked about confidence. We talked about consistency. Man, you gotta, you got to read to learn. You want to get full, you got to eat. That's just a truism of life. Amen. You, you don't get full by staring at food. You don't get full by being in the same room as food. You don't get full by watching somebody else eat food. You only get full by eating food yourself. So you've got to learn, uh, read to learn. We talked about context. When you go to study the Word of God, if you're going to study a chapter, if you're going to study uh, 2 Timothy chapter number 2, you know what I'd say? Read chapter 1. Then read chapter 3 and chapter 4. Read what's around it's worth your time. I don't know how important your time is, but no matter how important it is, it's not worth more than the Bible. So take the time. It won't take you very long. Uh, most of us have a gross underestimation about how quickly we can prayerfully and carefully read the Word of God. If you'll take the time, you'll find that most of the time you can read two chapters before and two chapters after, and it probably won't take you any more than about ten minutes. And that could be the very key to understanding what that particular part of the Bible says. So context is king. Uh, imagine it this way. I gave sort of a weak application or illustration last week. But I'm going to revisit it, and maybe it won't be as weak this time. But, uh, you know, you think about in your home, you have a series of locks and doors to keep you safe. You don't have one line of defense. You have many lines of defense. I'm not going to go through all of it in particular because I don't trust a bunch of Baptists who break into my house. But suffice it to say, in my house, you're going to have to go through a lot of locks before you ever get to my bedroom and are staring down the barrel of my nightstand gun. All right? It's going to take you some time to get there. And we have these multiple safeguards. Well, you know what a big safeguard is to not being uh, erroneous in studying the Bible? is context. God put it there for a reason. And then we use this word, the word composite. Composite. So the Bible's a composite book. Uh, if, if all God wanted us to have was the book of Revelation, He would just give us the book of Revelation. If all He wanted us to have was the book of Psalms, He would have just given us the book of Psalms. 
But guess what? He's given us all 66 books of the Bible because they portray, they paint a picture of who God is. You remember we quoted it a moment ago in the book of Hebrews. Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written to me to do thy will, O God. Not just in one place, not just in two places, in the volume of the book. So the Bible's a composite book. Most errors in the modern church come from single verse doctrines. Say, what do you mean by that, preacher? Well, somebody taking one verse, ripping it out of context, and then using it to try to build a whole system of thought or belief while ignoring what the rest of the Bible teaches. So we talked about things being composite. Now, I want to give you a few of these tonight, and by the Lord's help, I want to hurry through this, uh, and we'll just see how much the Lord will help me to do that tonight. But we then talked about the technical principles of Bible study. Technical principles. You might say, well, preacher, what do you mean by that? Well, remember what our text says. It says, rightly dividing the word of truth. That tells me this, that if a, if a Bible student doesn't recognize there are divisions in the Bible, and does not recognize that, that there are distinctions in the Bible, if he does not navigate that properly, then he will not rightly understand the Bible. So there's a few guiding principles. We might use some kind of big $10 words, but I'll explain what they mean, so stick with me as we go through them. Uh, some principles. As you study the Bible, these, this ought to be how you approach the study of the Word of God. Can I say this before I even get into it? I don't believe that, that Bible study is something that is done through the pulpit down to the pew. Bible study is something we ought to all be doing. you got a Bible at home. If you don't, I'll get you one. But if you got a Bible at home, you ought to be reading it. You ought to be studying it. Uh, you ought to be spending time in. It doesn't take very long. Imagine how much time. Is, uh, listen, the, the, some of you ladies spend more time putting on mascara than you do reading the Bible. And some of you men spend more time picking your nose than you spend reading the Bible. Amen? So take the time to study the Word of God. Open it and read it. So I'm going to give you a few of these principles. We'll move through them very quickly. Uh, and then if the Lord helps us, we'll be done tonight. So the first one I wanted to share with you, and we talked about this a little bit last week. I'm going to use this word, literalism. Literalism. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, you can find that word literal in there. What does that mean? It means something to be taken at face value. Rightly dividing the word of truth begins with a literalist understanding of the text. Now, we've summed this up in, in this in this way. There's something called the golden rule of Bible study. I don't know who named it that. It really doesn't matter. It's the rule that is important. And it goes this way. When plain sense makes common sense... Seek no other sense. Now, what does that mean? That means when I'm reading my Bible, unless there's something in the text that requires me to believe that there's figurative language there, that there's metaphoric language there, unless something requires me to do that, I ought to just make the assumption that I'm reading about historical people, historical events, that they happen precisely the way that it's said right here in the text of the Bible. Now, don't misunderstand me. There is such a thing as figurative language in the Bible. You can study through and you'll find all kinds of places where metaphors are used and, and, and symbols are used and figurative language is used. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. And being a literalist does not mean we deny the existence of figurative language, but rather that we default to a literalist interpretation. Uh, let me tell you one of the most damaging things that, that a person can dabble in when it comes to studying the Bible. I've always called it what-if theology. What-if. Uh, so, you know, it starts with a what if theology and then it goes to a why not theology. <laughs> and what I mean by that is people saying, well, what if it happened this way? What if it really means this? Or, or why couldn't it possibly mean this and mean that? I, I remember, I don't know why this is coming to my mind. Um, but I'll tell you what it reminds me of. 
I remember being playing Little League when I was a kid. I, I played for a few years Little League. I had a great arm, but it was wild, man. I hit tons of batters. And I always said they were crowding the box, but really I just had no aim. Um, and so I always wanted to pitch, but they, they'd never let me pitch more than, you know, like one, one inning, uh, because the kids were scared when I would. <laughs> and so I always, I always wound up when, when, you know, when, when we were playing, we were in the, in, in the field, I always wound up in the outfield. I don't know why. Mostly I guess I was in trouble. You know that kid in the little league that's sitting out in the outfield picking dandelions? That was this kid right here. Right here. They put me out there because they didn't want me to hurt anybody, I guess, uh, with that wild arm. But that's all I was doing. I was sitting out there just picking dandelions, goofing off. Nobody could hit the ball that far, and I knew they couldn't, so there was no point in me being there. And I was just sort of twiddling my thumbs and picking dandelions. That's what what if theology is in studying the Bible. In other words, not down to serious business trying to understand what the Bible means and says, but instead doing precisely what Paul warns against here when he says, shun profane and vain babblings. That's what what if theology is. Well, what if this? What if that? What if this? Listen, this Bible's not a puzzle book, man. It's a revelation of God. And as such, we ought to approach the study of the Bible with a literalist perspective. I believe what the Bible says. I believe it happened just the way the Bible says that it happened. And, um, you know, a literalist understanding of the Bible, I wrote down this quote. Can I give this with you? The Bible is the supernatural record of the supernatural involvement of God in the natural world. So, in other words, this book is a supernatural book. But even beyond that, it records a supernatural God doing supernatural things within the scope of our natural world. Things like calming, uh, you know, the stormy sea. Things like feeding 5,000 from just a few loaves and fishes, and on and on we could go through the miracles of the Word of God. This Bible is the record of a supernatural God performing supernatural acts. As such, that's the basis of our literalist understanding of the Bible. Understanding that this Bible is not given as a metaphor for philosophical truth, but as a revelation of what God does in this world. That's the purpose of it. See, the reality is if we can accept Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. If we can believe that, and I believe that tonight, I believe it literally, I believe it happened just like the Bible said it happened, uh, and if we can accept that, then nothing except the context or the balance of Scripture should move us from a literalist interpretation of the past. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, if God can create the heavens and the earth, then surely he can send a whale to swallow a man up. If God can create the heavens and the earth, then he can stop the sun. He, he created the sun, he can stop it in its course. For half a day. Uh, if, if God created the heavens and the earth, then surely God walking amongst men could walk on water. Uh, none of those things are a problem when we accept that God created the heavens and the earth. And that first verse in the Bible sets the stage for a literalist understanding. Because if we accept that the world around us is literal, it had to come from somewhere. And we could spend time talking about the fallacy of of, uh, of, of evolution and, and, you know, so on and so forth. But I'm going to trust as Bible believers tonight that you accept Genesis 1-1 just as it says. When we, when we believe and accept that, that provides a foundation. If we can accept that, we should have no trouble with anything else in the Word of God. If God could do that, then he can do everything else. Now, again, it's not to say there's not figurative language. We'll talk a little bit about it tonight. But it's to say that our default should always be if the Bible tells me there's a man by the name of Jonah, 
uh, that he got on a ship headed for Tarshish, that God sent a storm uh, that uh, just about capsized the ship and that he was cast out into the ocean. A great whale that was prepared for him swallowed him up and that three days later he was spit out upon dry land. And if you want to know my opinion, I believe he died in that whale and I believe God raised him from the dead. But if if the Bible says that, I believe it. Now, there are places figurative language is found, and, and the text of the Bible teach you how to navigate that, but your default should be literalism. Let me give you a second thing tonight. We talked a little bit about it last week, and I'm going to use the word originalism. Now, the word originalism is actually, it's, it's not a word I'm coining. It's a word that it is, has to do with uh, constitutional law. And constitutional law, originalism means that you interpret the Constitution based upon what it meant to the people that wrote it. Uh, so, for instance, when, you know, in the Constitution, it says that men had the right to bear arms and people have often said, well, that was just, you know, muskets and things like that. Well, that's true, but those were the most advanced weapons they had in their day. And they had just got through overthrowing a tyrannical government with those uh, weapons. Uh, then I'm to interpret the Constitution as they would have received it, as they would have understood it. By the way, I am an originalist when it comes to the Constitution. I believe that's how we ought to accept it. I believe anything else is to do damage to it. But let me apply that to the word of God. We take that same principle and apply it to Scripture. It basically is summarized by saying this. The primary goal in interpreting a passage is to arrive at the correct original understanding and application of Scripture. Now, this is so important. I almost couldn't overstate the importance of it because here's where people get in trouble. They take every bit of the Bible and try to treat it as though it was written to them. Let me say this, and we'll say another word about it here in a moment. All the Bible is written for us, but it is not all written to us. Uh, you can go through uh, various books in the Old Testament. And I, let's, let's do an example. Let's take the book of Micah, the Old Testament minor prophet, the book of Micah. Micah was not written to people in East Tennessee living in this church age. That's not who the, the intended audience of it was. Uh, and as you study a passage, these ought to be your laundry list of what you're trying to understand. Number one, who penned the passage? Who penned it? Now, we don't know who penned every passage in the Word of God, but in the minor prophets and, and a lot of other places, the, the major prophets, we do know. Usually it's the person bearing their name. Isaiah wrote the book of Isaiah. Jeremiah wrote the book of Jeremiah. Ezekiel wrote the book of Ezekiel. Well, Micah penned down the book of Micah. The second thing you ought to try to understand is who was it written to? Who was the person that was intended? You can't understand, if you picked up a letter off, off the ground, you could not, if you had no envelope with it, you couldn't understand anything about it unless you knew who it was written to. You'd be really in, in sore shape trying to understand everything about that letter if you did not know who it was written to. So the book of Micah, for instance, is written primarily to the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, during the time when Israel was split into two kingdoms. The northern ten tribes were the kingdom of Israel. The southern two tribes were the kingdom of Judah. And uh, Micah, his prophecy primarily relates to the kingdom of Judah. The third thing you ought to be trying to understand is when was it written and what was going on at the time that it was written. So this is so foundational. Uh, if you can develop a working chronology of the Bible, just understand what was written, when it was written. Uh, that'll go a long way towards understanding it. The Bible's not not without giving us guidance on that. The book of Micah, chapter number 1, verse 1. So you can't read the book of Micah without reading this, and you'll read it before you read anything else in the book of Micah. says, The word of the Lord that came to Micah, the Morathite, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So in other words, evidently, Micah lived at the same time Isaiah did. 
Uh, Isaiah prophesied throughout all of those kings, their tenures and reigns. And the same thing's going on in the book of Isaiah. The same thing's going on uh, during Micah's giving of this prophecy. And you can read about those kings uh, in the book of uh, First and Second Chronicles. You can read about what they did. Some of them were good kings. Some of them were not good kings. But it'll give you an understanding of what's going on at that time. Again, context is important. If I was to pick up a letter, if I was to pull a letter out of a bottle out of the sea, uh, it would make a difference whether it was written in 1995 or 1895. It would make a difference if it was written uh, in 1995 or if it was written in 1495. I mean, all those things would matter. And it's the very same with the Word of God. So uh, Micah prophesied during the time of Isaiah. Israel was apostate, meaning they had turned their back on God, and they were on the brink of destruction. They hadn't been destroyed yet, but they were about to be destroyed. And Judah, the southern tribe, that southern kingdom that Micah wrote to, they were flourishing. Uh, they were at ease. They were at rest. They had their, their borders seemed strong, but sadly they were drifting away from God. And then the final thing you ought to try to understand, so let's review them. Who penned the passage? Who was it written to? When was it written and what was going on during the time? That leads you to this final thing, which is this. How did it apply to the people to whom it was written? How? What would they have thought when they read that? What did it mean to them? Well, for the book of Micah as an example, we're just using that as one example. You go through any book of the Bible and find these very same things. Uh, basically is this. Judah is exhorted to consider the example of Israel. And to repent before it's too late. In other words, the, the majority of that prophecy is Micah looking at the kingdom of Judah and saying, don't you see what's happening to the northern kingdom of Israel? Don't you see they're about to be destroyed? You turn and trust God and, and repent of your sin before it's too late. Well, let me make a very important statement, a very simple statement here. Application of the word of God. It's not only permitted, it's, it's commanded. So in other words, when we study the Bible, we ought to always strive to say, how does that apply to me? How does that apply to me? I know how it applied to them, but how does it apply to me? The book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 says, talking about the Old Testament saints and what happened in their lives, said all these things happen unto them for in samples, for examples unto us. And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Paul says these things may have not been written to us, but rest assured they are written for us. And as such, we can make an application to our lives. But listen carefully. The application is always secondary to the exposition or explanation of the text. The application should always grow out of the original application of the text. I'll give you an example with the book of Micah. You know what we ought to do when we read the book of Micah and when we read all that Micah is saying to the kingdom of Judah and how he's warning them that if you keep going down this path, it's going to lead to destruction. The judgment of God's going to fall. The chastening of God. He loves you, but he doesn't want to see you destroy your lives and he's trying to stop you somehow. When we read that, you know what it ought to make us say? Man, I need to make sure I'm walking with God. And I need to make sure if there's anything in my life that's not right, that I get it right. Because sooner or later, I'm, I'm going to have to deal with the consequences of the way that I live. I need to get my life right. So we make an application, but that application ought to grow out of the uh, understanding of the text. Great damage is done in studying the Bible when people try to take an application and rip it out of the text and, and make an application that ain't got nothing to do with what God was saying to those people. I don't mean this in an ugly way, but guess what? For uh, Other than the Pauline epistles, God wasn't talking to you and me. He was talking to other people. group. Now, that doesn't mean God doesn't have something for us in it, but it is to say that we need to take into account that that letter we pulled out of that bottle, figuratively speaking, it wasn't written to us. There may be things we can learn from it, 
Uh, but we need to always ascertain what was originally meant. Uh, the best example of this is in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 8. Whenever Nehemiah gets up and reads the law to the children of Israel, this is how they did it. All right, listen to what it says. So they read in the book in the law of God distinctly. In other words, they read it clearly. They read it specifically. They didn't paraphrase. They read exactly what the Bible said. And then it says that they gave the sense. In other words, they explained what that passage meant. They explained what it meant to the people that it was written to. And then finally it says, and caused them to understand the reading. Made application of that to their lives. So your first goal in studying the Bible, in originalism, ought to always be to find out who wrote it, who was it written to, when was it written, and what was going on at the time, and how did it apply to those people. Once you learn all that, again, the illustration, you got all these locks in your house to keep yourself uh, from getting assaulted or keep somebody from coming in and hurting you. And all of these things, understanding the context of the passage, these are all safeguards that keep you from wrongly dividing the word of truth. So originalism is important. You still with me tonight? I hope that you are. Um, some of this I'm just going to have to to move through. But let me give you an example of, I think, a passage that people uh, sometimes miss interpret. Can I do that? Uh, this will be familiar to a lot of people in the room, maybe not everybody, but most people. Jeremiah chapter 29. And uh, how many of you have heard this uh, verse quoted before? I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you, and ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. Have you heard that before? Listen to what the context of it is. Let's back up a verse. It says, for thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon. So that's when the children of Judah were taken captive into Babylon and were held captive there by the Babylonians. After 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. In other words, God was going to deliver them from captivity. Then it goes to the passage that we're familiar with. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord. After the passage we read a moment ago that we're so familiar with, this is what it says in verse 14. It says, I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and I will turn away your captivity and will gather you from all nations and from all the places whither I have driven you, saith the Lord, and I will bring you again into the place whence I caused you to be carried away captive. Now let me say, I don't think there's anything wrong with looking at that and understanding that God wants us to seek Him. I don't think there's anything wrong with reading that and recognizing that God has a plan for our life. I believe God has a plan for every person in this room. But the, the context of it makes it clear. Here was a group of people that had been disobedient to God. They had messed up, man. They had made a mess of their lives and they had gone into the judgment of God because of it. And they were probably sitting in Babylon thinking, God hates us. God's angry at us. God's mad at us. We've made a mess of our lives. I don't know about you, but there's been a time or two I've felt that way. There's been a time or two that I've thought, man, I've, I've made a mess of this. If I was God, I'd never want to speak to me again. Thank the Lord I'm not God. Amen. And what peace it is to know that even in those moments when I've messed up and I am messed up, that God's not sitting up in heaven, uh, cracking his knuckles, waiting to drop a hammer on my head. God's saying, listen, I've got a plan for your life. You may have messed up. You may have made mistakes. But I have a plan for your life. And the thoughts that I think towards you, they're not thoughts uh, of evil. They're not thoughts of, of violence. But they're thoughts of peace for you. Now, that's a place where... People often misinterpret that text and a right interpretation of it. You know what it does? It doesn't diminish, it expands. it, And it makes me realize just how much God loves me that even when I mess up, he still has a plan for my life. 
So we talked about originalism. Let me move on to this next big old $10 word, all right? And I'll explain it. I'll, I'll define it for you. But the theological term is this, dispensationalism. That's a big word. Uh, a dispensation is basically, and we can even hear that word in it, dispense, right? To dispense something, to pour something out, or to deliver something from one person to another person. Uh, rightly dividing the word of God is to understand that the Bible can be divided into different dispensations or different times when God spoke to man and gave man truth that man was expected to respond to. I'll give you an example of these. In fact, I'll, I'll list all seven of them or quote unquote eight. And I'll explain what that means in, in a second. So when God created man, he created him in innocence. There in the Garden of Eden, man did not have a carnal nature. He had the ability to choose to sin if he wanted to, but he didn't have a propensity to sin. He didn't have a sin nature yet. And in that state of innocence, God expected very little of Adam and Eve. Uh, here's pretty much what God expected. Uh, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The whole Bible for them would have been that sentence. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Name the animals and don't eat of that tree. God didn't expect very much of them because in their innocent state, uh, they didn't have the propensity to sin and to do wrong. Sadly, that state of innocence wasn't enough to keep a man righteous. And we know the story of Adam and Eve and how that uh, Eve ate of the fruit and gave to her husband Adam and he ate of the fruit also. So that was the dispensation or the age of innocence. It was in the Garden of Eden before the fall and sadly it ended in man's fall. Then... God spoke and uh, he gave the rule or the law of conscience. So God had revealed to Adam and Eve some things about how that they were expected to live. For instance, we see Cain and Abel giving sacrifices to God. And we see that God expected a certain type of sacrifice to be given. So evidently they understood some things about who God was and how God expected them to live. But there was no law that had been given. There was no government to enforce these things. And uh, God wasn't sitting around waiting with a hammer to bonk them over the head if they did what was wrong. Instead, this was what we call the age of conscience. So God revealed some things and said, now I expect you to do them because you know that they're right. Can I tell you something? I know this is a little bit of a deviation, but it's more than conscience that keeps us today living right. There's times I can completely ignore my conscience. I take old Jiminy Cricket and just squash him and ignore it completely, right? And it's in those moments the Holy Spirit of God has to smite me, has to convict me, has to bring my mind back around to what I've done wrong. Well, in this day, they didn't have the Spirit of God living in them. And there wasn't priests and, 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 and the law and, and all these statutes. And there wasn't even government uh, to deal with them if they did what was wrong. Only their conscience. How did it end? Well, the Bible tells us in Genesis 6 that the world got so wicked that every thought of man's imagination was only evil continually. Conscience wasn't enough to keep man right. And so the age of conscience ended in the flood, a universal flood where God destroyed the world all except eight people, Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives. When Noah gets off the ark, God tells Noah, says, uh, listen, I'm going to give you a special uh, jurisdiction. Nobody else has had this before, but he said, I'm going to institute what we call human government. He looks at Noah and he says, I'm going to give you the sword, metaphorically speaking. And if a man sheds another man's blood, then by man, his blood will be shed. And he tells Noah, it's your job to exact this government upon mankind. And if man doesn't live right, now there are laws. 
And now all of a sudden government has the ability to deal with a man if he's done what's wrong. Well, how did this work out? Well, we find that we get just about four chapters uh, further in the book. And you know what man did as a response to this? Mankind all banded together and decided they were going to build a great tower and kick God off of his throne, figuratively speaking. And they basically said this. Noah has has been given the responsibility of bearing the sword of being the government. We don't have to listen to him. We'll all get together and create our own world and our own system and our own government. So the age of government ended in the Tower of Babel. The Bible teaches us that God went down to the Tower of Babel and he confused the languages of the world, meaning that he caused some to speak this language and some to speak that language so that mankind wouldn't band together and try to overthrow God's authority. Well, mankind continued to do what was wrong. And so God spoke to a man by the name of Abraham. And he called Abraham to leave his family, leave his home. Now, that's not to say to leave his domestic responsibilities. He still he had no children at the time, and he, and he took his wife, Sarai, with him. But basically said, leave all your, your, your extended family, and I'm going to make you a promise, Abraham, that if you'll follow me and if you'll trust in me, I'll give you a great land and I'll give you a, a, a whole nation will come from you and, and they'll be as the stars of the heaven, as the sand of the sea. And Abraham, all you have to do is believe this promise and in faith respond to me. Abraham did that after a bit of a misstep at the beginning. And so this promise was given not just to Abraham, but to his son Isaac. And not just to his son Isaac, but also to Isaac's son, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. And you probably, if you've studied the Bible, you know the story about Joseph. How Joseph, one of the sons of Jacob, was sold into slavery and delivered into, uh, and, and was delivered into Egypt. And through that, he rose to a place of prominence. And, and God used Joseph to really to save the entire known world at that time. And uh, there in Egypt, the children of Israel went from just a family of 75 people. They grew to a whole mighty nation. And you fast forward 450 years through human history, and all of a sudden now these descendants of, of Joseph and these descendants of Jacob, uh, they're probably about 2 million strong, and they're a slave force there in Egypt. God delivers them. You know the story of Moses and uh, the ten plagues on Egypt. God delivers the children of Israel. And he, he takes them out into the wilderness uh, of, uh, of uh, the Sinai Peninsula. And he basically says this to the children of Israel. All right, listen, I'll, if you'll follow me, remember the promise is still what's enacted here. God had made a promise that he was going to deliver them. He was going to give to them the whole land of Canaan, the modern day, not just Israel, but most of the Middle East. And he said, if you'll follow me, then I'll lead you to this land and you'll conquer it and it'll be your land. And all you have to do is just trust me. Believe my promise concerning this land, and I'll lead you in. The children of Israel go to a place by the name of Kadesh Barnea. And it's right there at the entrance of Canaan. Right there at the entrance of the land that God has promised them. And uh, they decide they're going to send spies into the land to see what the land looks like. And if you've grown up in Sunday school, you've sang the, the song about 12 spies. You know, two were good, ten were bad. These 12 men go in and they search out the land and they come back. And uh, ten of the men said... There's no way we can do this. God can't even give this land to us. There's giants in this land. There's terrifying armies in this land. So God gave him a promise and said, Believe my promise and I'll lead you into this land. And the children of Israel said, No. We can't accept that. We cannot believe that. In response to that, God uh, gives them the law on Mount Sinai and says, If you won't believe my promises, then I'll give you statutes and commandments to govern the way that you live. If you won't walk with me and follow me, then I'll give you a book that'll tell you how to live. So in other words, the dispensation of promise ended in unbelief 
at Kadesh Barnea. And God gave the law from Mount Sinai. Now, the law stayed enacted all the way from Moses, who received the law on Mount Sinai, all the way down to the time of Christ. And the children of Israel, instead of the law making them good, making them righteous, they continued to rebel, continued to do wrong. You can read the book of Judges, and you'll find that over and over again, the children of Israel continued to they'd rebel against God. God would deliver them to their enemies. They'd cry out to God and say, God, deliver us from our enemies. And God would send a judge to them or a, a statesman of sorts that would uh, deliver them from their enemies. And then for a little while, they'd do pretty good and pretty soon they'd rebel again. And that sad pattern was relived, not just in the book of Judges, but all throughout the Old Testament. The children of Israel just kept rebelling against God. And they even took the law of God and gutted it of any meaning and just made it a matter of ceremony and formality. You come down to the life of Christ and God decides that the failures of mankind have been proven beyond necessity. They cannot be righteous. They cannot live right on their own. They cannot do right on their own. And the only thing that can rescue them, the only thing that can save them, they no matter how many times you told man what to do, man didn't have the ability to do what was right. Don't that sound like your life and mine? Don't have the ability, want to do right, but can't do right. God basically says this, all right, I'm going to have to do right for them. And so God sends his son, who is born of a virgin and lives in this world 33 and a half years, lived a perfect life, never sinned, never did a single thing wrong lived up to what the law demanded in every way, shape, fashion, and form. And sadly, instead of the children of Israel looking at him and saying, well, that's our king, that's our Messiah, that's the one that that God's been promising he would send to us. Instead, the Jews said, we have no king but Caesar. We will not have this man, Jesus, to rule over us. And through criminality, through deceit, through a kangaroo court, they have the perfect son of God. The perfect man who's never done a single thing wrong. They have him sentenced to death through lies and through blasphemy. And there on the cross of Calvary, the perfect sinless lamb of God is hung up there. And he dies like a criminal. He dies like a lawbreaker. He died like a man that had done exactly what man had done throughout all these generations. Like a man that had broken the law. Like a man that had blasphemed God. We might say it this way. that He became our sin. He became our sin. When God should have judged us, He judged Christ. When He should have reached back His hand and and smitten us and destroyed us because we're lawbreakers and we're sinners and we're unrighteous and we're incapable of doing what's right, instead, God trained His fist upon His only begotten Son, sinless and perfect, that had never done anything wrong. And He became our sin. That's what the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says. Uh, For God hath made him to be sin for us. And that he knew no sin. And God did that so that you and I might be made the righteousness of God in him. In other words, God took all of our sin and put it on Jesus. And now if we'll believe in him, God will take all of his goodness, all of his righteousness, all of his virtue and put it on us. He's our substitute. And that ushered in a new dispensation. The law was over at that point. The Bible says that Christ Jesus has become the end of the law uh, unto them that believe unto him for righteousness. So the dispensation of the law, you know how it ended? It ended in the rejection and crucifixion of the Messiah. So Christ died in our place upon the cross of Calvary. And then a new dispensation began. A new way of God dealing with man and a new level of what God expects out of mankind. And we call it the dispensation of grace. Ephesians chapter 2 says, For by grace are ye saved. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. 
In other words, there's no good works that I could do that would please God. And even if there was, I'm incapable of doing it. That's been proven. But no amount of good works could please God. So you know what God says? God says, I'll just give it to you. If you will quit leaning on yourself, if you'll quit trusting in yourself, and if you'll come to me and just ask me to forgive you and save you, if you'll come to me and quit depending on yourself to get to heaven, then I'll just, out of the riches of my grace, out of the righteousness of Christ, I'll just forgive you and I'll I'll make you, I'll treat you like I would treat my own son. And this dispensation of grace has existed now for 2,000 years. Now, I wish I could tell you the dispensation of grace is going to end well, but if I read my Bible correctly, it actually doesn't. Now, for those that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, it ends well. We talked about it tonight, the, the soon coming Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to come back and receive us unto himself, those that have believed upon him. But for the world at large, the world doesn't accept the grace of God. They reject the grace of God. And so this dispensation of grace, you know how it ends? It ends with the appearance of a man that the Bible calls the Antichrist. After the church is gone, this man is going to rise and he's going to build a great one world empire. He's going to finally join all of mankind together in defiance against God. For seven years, this man's going to govern this empire. And at the close of those seven years, and there's much we could say about him, but at the close of those seven years, the Antichrist has been on the throne and the real Christ comes back to take his throne. The Revelation chapter 19 tells us, John said that uh, he saw Christ coming on a white horse and uh, that uh, his uh, name is the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, had a name written on his thigh, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, his vesture dipped in blood, meaning he's come back for war, and uh, that there's a sharp two-edged sword that proceeds out of his mouth, meaning the word of God, meaning that he doesn't have to fight a physical battle, but just the power of his words, those same Words that were able to knock back those soldiers in the in the Garden of Gethsemane when Christ said, I am He, and those men just flew backwards because the Word of God is powerful. It's by the Word of God that the worlds were created. He's going to destroy the armies of the Antichrist, and that'll begin the seventh dispensation. We call that the millennium. The millennium. I don't see how a man could miss it. The book of Revelation says clearly that Christ will reign for a thousand years. Even this millennium, I wish I could tell you it would end well, But you know, if I read my Bible correctly, even it doesn't. You know why? Because mankind is still fallen. Even during the millennium, mankind's still fallen. There'll be people that live through the tribulation period, and there'll be children that are born, and they still have a sin nature, and they still have that propensity to do wrong, even in the millennium. Sin won't run rampant because Christ will rule and reign, literally, visibly in this world. He'll live in this world, and he'll rule and reign from a throne in Jerusalem. The Bible tells us that at the end of the thousand years, the devil who has been bound for that season will be released and he'll go and deceive the four corners of the earth. And once again, mankind will gather together to try to throw off God's authority at a battle called the battle of of Gog and Magog. And the Bible says in the book of Revelation that the Lord will destroy him with the brightness of his coming, with the words of his mouth. And this is the reason I said maybe eight. I don't know if we could call it a different dispensation. But the book of Revelation ends by telling us that in God's kingdom, there'll be no unrighteous, there'll be no ungodly, that all those that have rejected Christ will have died, sadly, tragically in their sins and went to hell. But that those that have received him, they'll be given a new body. That happens prior to to this, what I'm calling the endless day, the time after the millennium. Uh, they'll have been given a new body and they won't have a sin nature. They won't have that desire or that ability to do wrong. And there, that endless day, that time 
uh, in which God reigns in righteousness. Again, I hate to call it a dispensation. It's not really. It's the end of all things. The end of all things. When God has restored and brought all things together back unto himself. That, that's the idea behind dispensationalism. That to study the Bible, you have to understand that God expected certain things out of man in different times and different ages. Uh, if you had been a, a person living during the age of government, after Noah and before the Tower of Babel, God wouldn't expect you to call upon the name Jesus Christ. You would have never heard the name Jesus Christ. Now we live in a day where there's none other name whereby you must be saved. There's none other name given among men under heaven whereby you must be saved in the name of Jesus Christ. We have so much more knowledge now than we have. Then Christ has come and lived. And now God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. And salvation is only and solely through Jesus Christ. In this dispensation of grace, I've, I've gone so far over time. I don't know if you're, the, throw your watches away. They're wrong anyway. Let's have an invitation. All right. Miss Connie, come play for us tonight. Uh, let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the, the, the blessed nourishment that it is to our hearts and souls. I pray you'd bless this invitation. I don't know what you may have done in hearts, but I do pray that your work would be accomplished and help us to be obedient, Lord. There's nothing for us to be afraid of in dealing with you. You love us. You care about us. So help us to respond obediently with our heads bowed, our eyes closed.